Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. More vaccine eligibility in Hamilton. Vaccine shopping, smart science, or privileged hesitancy. And more information on that Winnipeg lab and the two scientists it fired. Plus, the military ombudsman gives a scathing report on the lack of action around sexual misconduct. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Are you ready, Freddie? Yep. It's your last week of school. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Hey, I think it's my last week of school. Yeah, I almost forgot. And what grade am I in? It's the Scott Thompson Home wow. Show. Here's <laughs> Scott Thompson. Made you laugh. Obviously making great strides when it comes to uh, vaccination in uh, southern Ontario, right across the hotspot of the greater Toronto-Hamilton area. And uh, in the last, say, six weeks, once the vaccines really started to come in here in mass quantity in May, we have seen a, a huge uptake as uh, 75% uh, of us in Ontario have already had the first dose, looking at like 20% for the second, which is uh, pretty impressive in a short period of time. And one of the uh, people behind all of that and watching it uh, and trying to coordinate it all, Paul Johnson with us, Director of the Emergency Centre, City of Hamilton. He is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well, Scott. Great to be with you. You know, we've talked about this so many times, Paul, over the last year or so. Uh, it, it's got to make you feel good about where we are today and, and how, you you know, we're, we're finally starting to see these plans come to fruition. It, it does. And I, I've often been, you know, the voice of, of what we can't do and the voice of what's not going right. And, and uh, that's been much of the last uh, 15 months or so. But uh, this last little period has been amazing. I mean, we sit here today, Scott, you talked about the provincial piece. You know, as of yesterday, just over 72% of eligible Hamiltonians receiving at least one dose, 22% receiving those two doses. We have over 55% of our young people, 12 to 17, having at least one dose. So, you know, those are the numbers that make me smile. Uh, and then, of course, driving around for the last little bit, we've got people on patios, we've got people lining up to engage in non-essential retail purchasing, and that's good from a, um, uh, from a retail perspective, an economy perspective, and pretty excited that uh, we'll be opening more pools and having some more programming recreationally uh, at the very beginning of July, assuming everything goes well. So, you know, while you're worried about variants, and we have to remember this virus hasn't disappeared, and it's not disappearing anytime soon, we need to remain somewhat vigilant around it. The numbers are all going in the right direction, and uh, it's been a long time since we've seen regular days of 15, 12, 20 in the terms of new cases as opposed to 120, 200 new cases, which is where we were not long ago, back in April. Hmm. So your thought, because obviously people are seeing these numbers and, and, and you know, thinking these are benchmarks, or, or and they certainly are milestones, and, and everybody should commend themselves for the hard work that they've done here. But any comment on Because some are saying it's too fast. Others are saying it's too slow. I mean, is obviously there isn't a perfect answer here to keep everybody happy. But uh, too fast, too slow, your thoughts? Uh, you know, there isn't a perfect answer, and you hate to be in those positions of what to do when, but I think the the approach that's being taken is a reasonable approach. 
uh, what are we encouraging right now? We're encouraging outdoor activities. And we know absolutely that the lowest risk activities uh, in terms of the transmission of this uh, of this virus happen in outdoor uh, areas. So absolutely, let's get back to uh, more activities that are in the outdoor. And then when we do do indoor activities, it's to keep those numbers low enough that people can keep their distance uh, and that, um, uh, you know, we're not indoors for long periods of time. So, you know, retail, typically we don't spend, uh, malls aren't open yet to spend hours in and in the other retail places we're in and we're out and low numbers of people. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's going along well. And the other piece is we're preparing well for the fall. This is when we need to get schools open. We need to get schools open as soon as possible, make sure in-class learning is, is what's happening in September. And I think these are the types of things that allow us to plan well, uh, well for that. But, um, you know, as I continue to say, uh, alongside all the good news and all the new things that we can do, uh, just remember that uh, the transmission of this virus is still occurring in our community. The cases haven't gone to zero and uh, this new variant is uh, is a tough one. So the answer to that is let's get as many people fully vaccinated as possible as soon as possible. And it's great news that uh, those second dose strategies have all been accelerated so more people can book those second doses sooner. All right, let's talk about that in Hamilton. Uh, who is eligible? What can we do? How can we uh, How can we get a vaccine? Well, what's happening is a, a rapid acceleration of a second dose strategy. So as of yesterday, anybody who received the Pfizer Moderna vaccine on or before May 9th was eligible to book their second dose uh, at, a, at a shorter interval of at least uh, 28 days. As of tomorrow, individuals who received it May 30th or before uh, would be eligible to book that. And by the end of next week, we expect that um, that all residents over the age of 18 will be eligible to book their second dose appointment on a shortened interval. It's at least 28 days um, uh, after that. And then for those who received AstraZeneca, of course, uh, the advice is that uh, uh, you can choose to uh, to go forward with a second dose of AstraZeneca and do that through the, the channels you've been looking at. Again, the interval shorted, shortened to 8 to 12 weeks, uh, somewhere in that range. Or you can choose to receive an mRNA vaccine uh, Pfizer or Moderna, and uh, that can be booked as as well at that same eight to twelve week mark. So you don't have to wait to twelve weeks. Uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with waiting to twelve weeks, but we are conscious of this Delta variant in particular, and uh, we do know that with full vaccination, there's a much stronger coverage against that variant than with just a single dose. So lots of opportunity, and by next week, uh, we're we're looking at everyone being able to book in those second doses as quick as they can, and uh, we'd encourage Hamiltonians to uh, to do that if it uh, it works for them at all, uh, and and let's get that second dose in as quick as we can. Uh, as I mentioned, in the last six weeks, the progress has been just unbelievable. Are you uh, how impressed with you are? Are you with the uptake of all of this, Paul? Like you said, we're over seventy percent who have who have jumped on the first dose. We have to assume that the, you know eventually those people will all get the second dose. Uh, any idea what we're going to be left with of how many are fully vaccinated by the end of this? Could we see eighty, eighty-five percent? Well, let's drive towards that. I, I mean, that's what we you know. There really isn't an upper uh, you know, limit. I mean, obviously, if you get to 100%, then you yeah. hit that upper limit. But there isn't one where, you, uh, you know, if you get to a certain number, you're okay. The higher, the better. It is It is not a situation of uh, diminishing returns after that. We, kill, we still get the returns. So let's keep it rolling. 
I mean, the only challenge we have, Scott, is, of course, the uptake has been very overwhelming. People want to get that second dose in particular at a faster schedule. Uh, people will find that the booking of that will take a little bit of time. You're not going to just log on and get one tomorrow because uh, the bottom line is we're fully booked up, and it's uh, it's just great. And the other slight reminder is as you book that second dose, if it's at a different time, uh, please make sure you cancel your original second dose yeah. date. That way we've got uh, access for everybody as we move forward. So a little bit of patience. I think the only downside to what's happening right now is that, uh, uh, you know, we just still do have, um, you know, it's not the same supply concerns that you and I talked about a few months ago, but, you know, supply is not limitless. Uh, so there there will be a slight delay in people getting into the bookings as more and more people are eligible. But, uh, uh, you know, I'll talk about my own personal situation. It was uh, It was great to see originally scheduled for a second dose in August, and that's been moved up. And I'll actually get it um, because of, of my ability to book uh, and eligibility to book. I've uh, I've got it coming on this Friday, so it's a it's a huge change in terms of the timing for me. And that's the story that we're hearing time and time again from Hamiltonians. Please, that they can get that second dose on a much shorter time frame. Uh, I'm in the exact same boat as you are, Paul. Uh, and what I found was like last week, it was, uh, uh, the appointments were, I wouldn't, I don't want to say plentiful, but it certainly wasn't like it is in the first few days of all of this. And, and, and another, I guess, piece of advice from, from, uh, from someone who's trying, who's been doing this is that, uh, you know, everybody on the first day, the systems are going to be overloaded. It's like trying to get a concert ticket on the first day that the, uh, the, the, the tickets go on sale. But unlike a concert, ticket we have lots of this it's not a you know a certain set amount so again even by waiting a day or so i found it very easy to get in it is and and although i know people say hey i'm eligible i'd like it within the next half hour please and i i, yeah. I get that i felt the same way i felt this uh, this sense of, of urgency that uh, i needed to get it and of course during the first day of, of eligibility was not able to book an appointment yeah. but the same thing you had is is as you work through it, you will get it. And again, will it be as fast as someone might absolutely want it to be? No, but there are lots of booking appointments and the supply constraint we're talking about is really just the case that we don't have 100,000 uh, doses that we can give out today and we don't have the infrastructure to support that. We are, But we are clipping along very, very well. And this is why we set up the system to do so many doses early on when we had very little supply. <laughs> and everybody said, geez, you got these big centers and big abilities, but you don't have the supply. And we said, well, when it comes, we don't yeah. want to have to ramp up at that point. So our folks are, are working flat out, our partners and primary care and, and all of the staff from public health and hospitals that are helping us. It's just uh, it's a wonderful uh, example of people coming together to do just what we're trying to do, and that's vaccinate as many people as possible as quick as possible. But let's we, not I, lose the momentum and let's not, you know, pick away the both mRNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, are equally strong. We need people to uh, recognize that the vaccine shopping idea just uh, really doesn't follow the science very well, and it really does create some challenges with people then turning up and declining a vaccine. Um, and then not only does that create an issue for that individual having to rebook, it's also taken a slot away that someone else might have readily accepted. So, uh, you know, absolutely people need to do their their own research and understanding and, and talk to people to get themselves comfortable. But this idea that there's there's these uh, way better approaches or way or worse approaches. It's just it's not true. There's guidance that's out there, but uh, the guidance is all the same. These uh, all the vaccines we have, including AstraZeneca, are very effective, and um, and we need to just uh, take what's available. 
You know, I certainly understand the confusion around AstraZeneca because the messaging has been terrible, to say the least. But, you know, the whole thing between Moderna and Pfizer, it's just like bizarre. I had one uh, health official say it's like choosing between Coke and Pepsi. I mean, it's virtually the same thing. And yet we're seeing this, which, uh, you know, what is that? Is that smart science or is that uh, privileged hesitancy? Uh, you don't know, and certainly, I mean, we've learned more about the actual manufacturers of these things than we than we ever would with a vaccine. I mean, I, I, I challenge anybody to tell me who the manufacturer or what their flu vaccine was the last time or the MMR vaccine that their child gets uh, early on. And if you can name the manufacturer, uh, yeah. good on you. I know that uh, that I couldn't. I got my flu shot uh, last year, and, and I couldn't tell you what manufacturer made it. So I think we're mm-hmm. more aware of it in this situation and there are lots of things out there. And then, of course, there have been these pieces of advice that come and go. And I, I know that that heightens anxiety. But, the you know, the bottom line is, is uh, that, uh, that that in all cases, there is a path forward for folks, uh, which is which is going to be really strong coverage against uh, significant illness and, and death as a result of COVID-19. And ultimately, it is way better to be vaccinated with what's available to you than to take your chances with this uh, with this virus the disease is not one you want to get and obviously with a small delay in pfizer here and a influx of moderna in the last few weeks uh you know thank goodness you have those options to go between one or the other uh what about the vaccine clinics are they all running uh, uh, on all cylinders now are they firing on all cylinders have we got enough to keep these things up and running Oh, absolutely. They are. And, uh, you know, they've been seven day a week operations. They don't take holidays off. Uh, they've been doing lots of great things in terms of our mass vaccination sites. And then we've been filling in with all sorts of, of uh, pop up clinics, they're called and mobile clinics. And we've even had the province come in and do what some of their clinics and they didn't need to come in because Hamilton wasn't performing, but it was great to have them come in to provide more opportunities and more locations. And they bring their own staff, which is fantastic. And then, of course, uh, you know, the Arsenal Middle DeFasco site that's been set up, they're running mm. it. They're, yeah. They're employees, of course, public health providing the vaccine, but they're doing the infrastructure work. So we actually have more opportunities in the last weeks and with the AMD clinic moving along, more opportunities for people to get vaccines without having to find more resources from uh, from the city or from our, our health partners. And that's going to be great. So things are, are there and and we're going to be able to do this very, very swiftly. And as you say, Scott, uh, Moderna's up, Pfizer's down. We had for many months, Pfizer was up, Moderna was down. So exactly. uh, the, the good news is, is that we're not reliant on one. And uh, to your point, um, Dr. Richardson continues to share this. It's, it's advice on our website and, and, and all government websites that these are, uh, these are good vaccines and they have all passed through the same uh, types of screens. And, you know, the information that comes out about concern about uh, impacts and whatever else is very common. And I think people need to read those and be aware. Uh, and I know it's, it's concerning when you hear information come out about the impact of the vaccine itself. But the reality is that millions upon millions upon millions of people around the world have been vaccinated with these products and they are still far stronger than the alternative, which is to take your chance unvaccinated uh, and, and getting COVID-19. Paul Johnson has been with us, director of the Emergency Center for the city of Hamilton and just firing on all cylinders. Over 72 percent of the population eligible has been vaccinated. Those are 18 plus. So, Paul, congratulations. Great effort for everybody down at the city. And uh, it's great to see things finally uh, coming out of the gray and into the sunshine. Good work. 
Thanks very much. Enjoy what you can out uh, doing the activities you can. And uh, absolutely, for those who uh, need to get their second dose, book it. For those who haven't uh, got any doses yet, get your first dose. Let's keep this rolling and keep those numbers going up. Thanks, Paul. Have a great weekend. Be well. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been hearing more and more about this. And, and, you know, obviously it started way back when, when we started getting conflicting information from uh, NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization and Health Canada. And can we be surprised now when we're hearing reports? Man, we even saw it on the news last night. People walking up to clinics and realizing it wasn't Pfizer. Uh, and in, instead, just simply the, uh, I guess, the poor man's version, Moderna, it's, I don't know, it, uh, it's amazing how people are looking at these two cutting-edge vaccines and even deciding which one is better than the other. Um, again, unfortunately, just due to misinformation that we've all received or uh, too much information, uh, whichever way you want to slice and dice this. But it is sad as uh, we've seen Pfizer come in for such an extended period of time uh, with, with you know, cer- certainly since this all started back in May when we started seeing mass shipments of vaccine come in. Uh, Pfizer, or sorry, uh, Pfizer's, yes, has been the backbone of all of that. But now uh, we're seeing some issues there. And thank goodness we have Moderna coming in. And remember, it was only a few weeks ago where their shipments were delayed. Now, all of a sudden, that coming in, as well as, I think, another million doses coming out of uh, the United States of Moderna. So this is great because just as our uh, vaccine, uh, uh, our vaccine process has has literally kicked into high gear. We're seeing 70 to 75 percent of Canadians with the first dose, uh, 20 percent with their second dose. Uh, You'd hate to see that all come to a grinding halt because... People want Coke, not Pepsi. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Omar Khan, assistant professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology at the University of Toronto, uh, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks. We certainly, I guess, can expect uh, some discrepancy around AstraZeneca considering the mix, uh, mixed messaging that we're hearing, but uh, are you? how concerned are you that people are uh, dropping a Moderna uh, and and waiting for a Pfizer shot when these are both the mRNA technology? It shouldn't really be done. Both these vaccines are excellent, and there is one situation in which you should avoid a vaccine if you are actually allergic to one of the ingredients. And This is why you should never make a decision on your own. You should be speaking to your doctor who understands your medical history, and they will say, you're allergic to something in Moderna, you need to take Pfizer. If that's not the case, then you should be really taking any one of these. And there really shouldn't be that much hesitancy around Moderna at all. Let's look at where Moderna has been used, right? It has been used extensively in the United States. They were funded as part of this Operation Warp Speed, and they had this commitment to help America out because they got a ton of money from them. So a lot of those doses stayed in America and was used in America, and they've been safe, and they've worked. So the rest of the world, like Canada, we haven't received this much, but we have received more of Pfizer because of these production and distribution and contracting issues, which is great. It's also a fantastic vaccine, but there's no reason to really prefer one over the other. If you look at their efficacy rates, they're both fantastic, and let's be honest, there's another mRNA vaccine that was recently going through some clinical trials, and it didn't do very well, and it's not going to get approved by the World Health Organization. 
So the two that we have available are utterly excellent vaccines, and we should really not avoid either of them. We certainly know the concerns that uh, that came out around the world inter- involving AstraZeneca, and I don't want to get on that right at this point, but, uh, you know, uh, people were concerned about that. However, ha- I don't think I've heard any concerns around Moderna or Pfizer, for that matter, in regard to issues over and above the ordinary. I mean, has there been anything that would suggest Moderna <laughs> isn't uh, at par with with what Pfizer is? No, in terms of efficacy and protection against severe disease, we have not seen any of that. So they both look good. There are some emerging reports that some people have seen heart inflammation with some of the mRNA vaccines. It's not causal. That has happened in a few cases across the world, and it's being looked at. But that type of inflammation happens with normal infection, and it could be some people's reaction to getting the vaccine as part of mimicking natural infection. So this is not something that we should be concerned with at this point. It's actually much safer compared to other options out there in terms of rare side effects, because if there are very rare side effects, they're not terminal. So that's really important to to also remember. These are very safe, and given how many people they've been in and how efficacious they've been, they're they're quite good. Uh, why do you think this is happening, Doctor? Why do you think we're questioning even these two top vaccines? I think in Canada in particular, this is happening because we've had a low supply of vaccines. And yeah. of the vaccines we had, we had a lot of Pfizer. So a lot of people have had that. And when you see other people have had it, so many people, and they're all, they're all safe and well, then you maybe want something that they have gotten. But to really put this into perspective, we need to step back from Canada and not just look at people around you who've gotten Pfizer because that was what was available. But if you look globally at who's got Moderna, look to America, see how many people got Moderna there and how many people have been doing very well, have good levels of protection, then you'll start to recognize that, hey, this is a global game. We have to look at everyone. And of all the people who got this, they're also doing exceptionally well. So it's definitely a good choice. It certainly seems uh, one of the major issues other than supply, as you said uh, earlier on in this pandemic, is communication. We've seen the differences uh, between NACI and and Health Canada on, on almost a half a dozen different issues, different times where they had contradictory information. We certainly know the value of NACI. Uh, we certainly know that it's good to have as many eyes looking at these things as possible and, and as many differing opinions as possible. But when it comes time to get the message out, we can only be speaking through one mouth and uh, or often the the information gets distorted uh we've certainly seen with the last with the last announcement from nasi that there's no press conference now that's just you know dr tam would just go ahead and reveal that information what needs to be done here so this does not happen again and we don't uh we don't get a c- competing uh information on things like this I think this is part of the reason NACI and Health Canada exist as pretty much separate entities because you want some, first of all, transparency. In a time like this, the decision was made, and probably the right decision, to be as transparent as possible, kind of 
lay out all the risks, all the benefits so people can understand. That does lead to a lot more information and the pressure on the individual to make the decision on their own given this information, which is something you never have to do. Talk to your doctor. Very easy. So that's the first part. And it's also important to have Health Canada's perspective as well as NACI. So Health Canada, what they're doing is that they're looking at the actual clinical data that the manufacturers put forth. So they run these global clinical trials. They compile the data and say, this is definitively what we saw. This is why we believe it's safe. Do you agree? Health Canada looks and says, yes, your data is solid. We've audited it. Looks fine. And, and they go for based on that. So NACI, they, they take a different approach. They try to rely on real-world data. They look at emerging trends. They look at things that, that might be coming up, and they try to, like, balance and juggle all, all of that. So it's a different perspective of the two, but both trying to get to the same place. So in the future, I don't know if we would want to have just one body speaking because, in the end, you do want transparency. You want to make sure everyone knows that, hey, we recognize that there are some challenges. We recognize that there are safety signals that are happening. We're trying to deal with it because when you're pushing up against a pandemic, speed is important, but making a decision quickly without full transparency can lead to problems because you don't want someone to think you didn't disclose everything. So this is the challenge, and it's really specific to pandemic, and it's just the speed at which the virus spread put a lot of new pressure on things and it's it's a hard question to answer um you know it seems either uh we live in a world of extremes Uh, there's people saying oh they're muzzling the science they're muzzling the science and then there's the opposite side where everybody who thinks they're a scientist or wants to be a scientist or is a scientist is speaking even though the message is not consistent uh i don't think this is about the about the amount of information of course information is knowledge and that is power we also the more information the more transparency we can get the better i don't think this is a science issue at all i think this is a communication and a leadership uh, issue. And again, we all know why and and what NASI does and, and the reason that there's the two different bodies. But let's be honest, at the end of the day, it didn't work. At the end of the day, doctor, it created complete chaos. Uh, chaos in which not a lot of countries have experienced this. Like it's, It only seems to be Canada that's going through this. Uh, the branding and, um, and, and choosing and all of this stuff. It, it, it's, so again, I don't think it's a science issue. I think it's a communication issue. And either way, no matter how great both these institutions are, this was a failure. And, and something needs to be done here. Something needs to change this. So even though we get all of the information, that's all great, but the messaging has to be consistent. That's a very fair point, and I, I do concede that. There should be more effort done on communication and responsible communication. Also, a way to balance it, making sure that everybody has access if they need it to the data, but then also making sure the context in which these communications coming out makes sense because we, you know, getting into a situation when someone's turning away a, a fantastic vaccine that everyone else in the world would love to have. And it's just a, it's a bit of a shame, especially when we look at what's happening globally. It's not done globally. And we have the opportunity to really protect our population here and other places don't. And it's just a shame that some people are, are putting themselves at risk, especially now with Delta out there by not getting vaccinated. So, yeah, I think we're learning from this, and I hope that communication, science communication is going to be 
probably the next big revolution in the field of science because it's hard. As science gets more advanced, there's much more nuance, and there's going to be a lot more effort on appropriately and responsibly explaining things. Well said. Um, your thoughts on opening up and where we are with the vaccination rates that we have sitting around 70 to 75% with the first dose, 20% with the second dose. Uh, should Are we moving too fast? Or are we moving too slow? Because it's pretty hard to find the balance here. People, you get people on both sides of this fence. I certainly don't think we're moving too slowly. I, I do think that if uh, this answer is completely contingent on global cases, the more cases we have globally, the more opportunity for the virus to replicate because there's more people infected. Every replication event is a chance for a mutation that can create a variant, and that's the problem. If you get a variant that's just different enough so our current vaccines don't work, then we're back into a situation where, hey, we might have to you know, shut down things, shut things down again. That's really want to avoid that. So it's very important to have fully vaccinated people and you know, getting up to 20% fully vaccinated, that's fine, but we know with Delta variant, you need two doses to have better protective immunity. And if we have low vaccine uptakes in small communities, that's a problem because while big cities will be well protected, these communities can be little, you know, fires, little flare-up spots all over the country, and we don't want that because then again, if they're that rural, do they have access to a ventilator if they need it? And this is where we're going to have to have these serious conversations about. So, Things are changing because of the global issue hasn't been resolved. And because of that, we have to be prepared to react because we can't expect stability until it's handled globally. So Mm. we're going to have to react appropriately. And what the data is honestly saying is that Delta is a problem. It's, It's growing. It's spreading quickly across the U.S. It's also in Canada and in the U.K. It's becoming the dominant strain because it spreads more easily and it makes you more sick. It was interesting. It was interesting, Omar, because just a few weeks ago we were asking, you know, wow, the U.S. has been open for a while. Uh, I remember seeing the Blue Jays opener down there in Texas months ago, and they had a full stadium and such. And yet we didn't seem to see the variants appear. But yet it's happening now. Yeah, it's it's there now. And we know that at least 14 percent of new cases is Delta. And it's the rate is, is going really fast. So this is Delta is out competing all the other variants. And the problem is that with Delta, we know that unlike before, you really do need two doses to have better protection. And that's where this is changing because with Delta out-competing everything else, which means it's spreading more easily and more quickly, to really have protection against that, we need fully vaccinated people. And 20% of the population fully vaccinated isn't quite going to get us there. How do we open Canada-U.S. borders if there's such a difference uh, on each side of the border? Like we remember, you know, at the beginning, the states took off. Man, they were vaccinating at a lightning pace. And then, of course, that all started to wane once they hit around 50 percent. I think they're sitting at 53 percent right now. Uh, and then hesitancy starts to kick in. Uh, meanwhile, in Canada, we're seeing like 70, 75 percent. Uh, with their first dose. Now, granted, in the States, this 53% includes a, a very high uptake of the second dose. But how do you mix those? How do you bring one across the border and not the other, vice versa? Uh, or is there just to a point once people are as vaccinated as we can get them, we got to open it up? It's the latter. Once you get people, as many people with your two doses as possible, that's what we can do, right? And then we have to, we open up, that's appropriate. And 
other than that, the only other tool we can do to mix this because, you know, we don't have many people with two doses. So from the risk perspective, Canada is looking a bit more risky than the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> so from that perspective, the only other choice is to maintain physical measures, like asking people to continue to wear masks until everyone's got their two doses in, and, and that's part of the, the challenge. And so it's, it's going to be difficult. But the real way we can kind of sort this out is to help with the global effort. And, and here's ways in which it can happen. Novavax is coming out with a new vaccine. Clinically, it's been shown to be working well so far, and if it gets approval... It's actually a protein-based vaccine, not an mRNA, which means Canada has the technology to help make it. We don't really have the technology to make an mRNA vaccine yet, but we can make a protein vaccine. And Medicago has a, another virus-like particle vaccine, mostly protein. And again, that's a Canadian company, and, and we can make that here. So by making vaccines and contributing to that effort and getting that out to the rest of the world, that's how we... That's how we fix this, and and really, I'm hoping to see Canada step into that role of helping make vaccine and getting it out to places so that we can see, really see stability. It's going to be quite a while before the world is vaccinated, isn't it? Yeah, it unless a lot of other countries start stepping in and, and helping out with the manufacturing process. And as we see new vaccines new from new manufacturers, different manufacturers coming, helping them get enough vaccines to deal with this, yeah, that's, it's going, it'll take a while unless we can all kind of mobilize on this. It's a global pandemic, and if we really want to have things open, we have to address this globally. So we're seeing about 75% of Ontarians with their first dose that are eligible, Do you, and, and there's no reason to believe that those, that amount doesn't get their second dose. What are your thoughts on those numbers? Those numbers are great. Yeah, I think it, they really help protect the people who will never be vaccinated, small children, because they're not authorized to get the vaccine. It's not part of the original clinical trial data. So the the reason we're always concerned is that if you do get a variant that's bouncing around and it just can hit the unvaccinated population, whether that's people who choose never to get vaccinated or people who just can't, like kids, then there's a chance that they can develop severe disease, and we don't want that. So we can protect everyone else by making sure that those who can be vaccinated are vaccinated. So I think keep it up. Canada has to be really proud of itself. I mean, look at where we've come in such a short time. Mm-hmm. 75% having first dose. We're pushing up past 20% for second doses. We're doing really well, and we're doing our part to address this globally. But once we do that here, we got to start lifting our heads up and looking around and seeing that, wow, this might happen again much more quickly than we thought. Let's fix this. Dr. Omar Khan is in with us, Assistant Professor with the Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology, University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This may be a little too inside politics for some, but it's a it's a very odd situation. What happened uh, yesterday? The president of the Public Health Agency of Canada is now the first non-MP in more than a hundred years to receive a formal reprimand from the House of Commons. Uh, the move is the latest escalation in a heated row over the government's refusal to hand over documents related to the firing of two scientists. 
This is at the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg. This is a lab that uh, uh, obviously is in contact with labs all over the world, including Wuhan, China. The firing of these two scientists is in questioning is in question in regard to their relation to China, the Chinese Communist Party, and specific and specifically uh, the military in uh, China. And unfortunately, when asked for information on this, uh, none was given, or there was so much redaction uh, in these documents that uh, they were they were virtually worthless. Uh, as a result, the president of the Public Health Agency of Canada was brought in uh, to the House of Commons for this reprimand. To explain this further and what it all means, let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, thank you. So what are your thoughts on this, Henry? The fact that this is the first non-MP to be uh, dragged in front of this bar, and perhaps you can explain exactly what the protocol is here and what happened. Yeah, well, it, it, it's, um, well the first thing everybody should, have to, should understand is uh, we are in a minority government. And when you're in a minority government, the opposition oftentimes looks for rules in the rule book that allow it to get a handle and to make life difficult for the majority government. Oh, sorry, for the minority, for the government itself. So that's why we're seeing. That's why we tend to see some various maneuvers like this uh, at the, in a minority government situation. Now, this is a very unusual one. I'm not so sure why this has happened over the. Has hasn't happened over the last 100 years with uh, with a non MP, but it has come. But basically, I think the opposition is getting very tired of this minority government in terms of hiding information from 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 the uh, from the MPs, from the uh, all the uh, uh, people who are in opposition who perform, who are actually the majority in the parliament right now, and uh, they've just had enough with this government, and they said, uh, you know, there's something. Big going on here, uh, very important, and you're not even letting uh, the committees in the House of uh, in our uh, in the Commons to uh, actually take a look at this material. And this is wrong. And uh, well, they don't really want to, you know, try to push onward to a you know a vote of confidence and and force a summer election because they know the Canadian people just don't want. A, a summer election, spe- especially in this last COVID summer, and uh, so they, someone found, you know, one of their staffers probably looked through the book about what they can do, and they said, oh, we can, we can embarrass the government, and we'll call in the president of this agency, which is uh, part of the government, and uh, we're going to make him uh, listen, give him a stern lecture uh, for not handing over material that he is legally obliged to hand over to us. So it's a shaming. It's really it's about you know saying shame on you. You're not doing your duties, and we're telling everybody about it. Considering where the world is with a a global pandemic and and such, um, this is this not information that the public is concerned about? Well, I think they would. I I think there's a there's certainly I think a concern about Canada, and and it's certainly I'm sorry about China. Uh, Canada has that concern, and uh, there are plenty of uh, official bodies that have buried in the reports saying we're worried about China. We're worried about China, and of course, with the uh, pandemic that we've had and and where it began, and how we we you know it got out of the <laughs> it, it's it spread very ra- rapidly and has called caused as we all know a tremendous disruption to our lives uh, for something that uh, really should have been uh, nipped in the bud. 
Uh, and so people, you know, pe- people are concerned about this. And I think there are details about it that if, if, if they paid attention to it, people would get very upset you know, about the infiltration of the National uh, Lab in uh, Winnipeg uh, in, in microbiology, a highly, highly secure, supposedly secure lab, winds up with, uh, with a husband and wife team from China who are, have a very important role and also who then start uh, hire, bringing over people from China to work in the lab who aren't even, you know, who even, aren't even hired by the lab but are in the lab mm-hmm. doing work I mean, and, uh, and, and suddenly, and there's trips uh, uh, of, the, uh, of these people going back and forth between uh, Winnipeg and China, and, uh, you know, and, so, and the details here look, you know, would look very bad, and, and I think probably the, uh, that would come out in all of this, and, you know, this would be shine the, really shine the light on what kind of administration was the, uh, the government, uh, you know, doing in the, over, and have oversight over this lab while it was allowing essentially Chinese nationals to come over and become an integral part of what was going on in what is supposedly a high-security high lab. Uh, that being said, we, we don't know anything about where these two are or whether they will be charged or, or what the future holds for them. That being said, they have been fired. They were removed apparently for security reasons. So why not just, uh, you know, uh, would that not just justify the firing? Here's what happened. We were doing our job. We figured this out and, uh, we got rid of them. And this is why we got rid of them. Would that not justify the firing as opposed to, keeping everything quiet and, and making it look like uh, the prime minister is just lax when it comes to China. Well, but I think the problem would be then the gov- the opposition would say there was a lot of things going on yeah. over, you know, over the course of a number of years, which should have been uh, nipped in the bud. And they were letting, you know, things were happening in that lab. And some of it's on the public record, although it hasn't gotten tremendous amount of interest in the country but you know we're essentially the as i said this couple obviously very very competent i mean this the couple especially the the wife in there who's a, she's an outstanding scientist and has made great bre- breakthroughs on infectious diseases especially ebola and uh, she you know she was just bringing people over from china to work in the lab, including somebody who was a uh, research scientist inside uh, the Chinese army. Uh, she's bringing over people who weren't even hired by the lab, and she was they were over there wa- uh, working. She was going back and forth between here and China. And then a really big flag, which which is known in the you know has been has been released already, is she she ha- she and her husband had a lifestyle that seemed to be far above the income that they were getting as research scientists in this lab, which is a real big, you know, flag, you know. And she boasted apparently to neighbors that she had a huge house in China and uh, she had a very nice house in Winnipeg that was very expensive and a beachfront property. And, you know, she was doing very well here. So the question is, where else was this money going, uh, coming from? And, of course, when she was going back and forth to China, the the lab was apparently wasn't paying for the for these trips somebody else was paying for the trips and the government refuses to say well who was actually paying for her trips to go back and forth between here and and China so, so there's, ha- there's a lot of flags there that, that they should have you know that they should have really again they should have really stopped this sort of thing from happening does this change the prime minister's office response 
to China and this sort of thing? Or at this point, uh, are they just trying to cover it up and, and, and whatever happened with these two scientists? Or are they actually learning from this and changing protocol uh, with this type of infiltration? Well, I mean, I think they, yeah, by getting rid of the two of them and they cut off all these other people are gone. So, yeah, so they're sort of starting, you know, they've, they've, they've gotten rid of this problem outside the lab, that's for sure. But, of course, the big problem is they don't want people to be talking about such a thing when we're likely to go into, you know, a fall election. They don't want this to be something that people are thinking about that the... Uh, that the uh, you know that our national security and our basic intelligence has fallen down over the last few years and they don't want people to be talking about that and uh, so it is interesting now we don't know what what has happened to that couple you know they don't they haven't been arrested there's no you know if they did something wrong and broke the law you know they probably should have a trial but if you have a trial uh, evidence comes out and people pay attention to it so we don't we you know we don't know i think I think they, they they want to keep it quiet, and 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 Trudeau has in a little while, uh, a few years ago, uh, came up with a method of trying to control criticism of his natural national security uh, program by essentially setting up a committee of MPs that he picked that who would be you know trying to give over oversight of uh, national intelligence and these type of things. Uh, but he picked them, and they would report. They would report to Trudeau, and he would decide what what reports that they would give would would come out. And it's not a parliamentary committee; it was a committee handpicked by him. Only two mm. conservatives on that committee. And Parliament says, "Hey, we have a committee to do that. These people are supposed to answer to the committee. The committee is, uh, you know, represents uh, the people who have been elected by by the people of Canada. That's our job to do." And instead, we have a prime minister who's trying to, you know, who's making the argument, well, my special committee that I've set up here on national security, this is the one that should uh, should be uh, going over this information and holding this uh, this body to, you know, the the uh, the people in charge of this lab to account. So he's he and he did that about I think about three or four years ago. And so it, it, it's a way to sort of prevent information getting into the house house of commons where it's going to you know see the light of day and have, be debated and uh, and i think they just you know the people in the house of commons uh, the the opposite you know the united opposition is just tired tired of this of trudeau trying to control control the the flow of information that should go there do we know anything more about this uh, Chinese couple, these two scientists that were fired? Do we know if they're still in the country? Do we know what they're doing? Uh, any, any of those questions, whether they will be charged? Well, they, we don't know where they are even. Uh, they have a very nice house in Winnipeg. I've seen pictures of it. And apparently the neighbors have said they haven't been there for a number of months. No one has seen them. But somebody's taking care of the house, but they're not there. And we we just don't know where they are, and uh, the go- I just think the government I would, who knows where they are. I mean, I think it's just of interest to the government that they're completely out of sight. For all we know, they may have gone back to China, or they just may be, you know, hiding out somewhere in Canada and just waiting until the election is over before they they, they surface again. But they don't. Uh, it doesn't seem like uh, when they first were fired that they were leaving the country. They made no attempt to do that. No charges have been laid against them. 
or are they working for somebody else? Well, I mean, the whole thing is, I mean, the whole concern is they were, they were working from the Chinese, for the Chinese government from day one. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 you know, the main one, the wife, as I said, she, who's a great scientist, she comes over as a student in, in uh, 1996, so over 20 years ago, and where does she decide? She's a medical doctor from China. Her, what does she, she, where does she decide to go to school? Is the University of Manitoba, which is a fine university, but it's not, you know, one of the really, mm. really top universities in Canada, uh, in that area. But it so happens to be the home of our, of our, our, our yeah. highly seek, you know, uh, secret uh, uh, lab that we've got there in microbiology. So, and then ten years later, she shows up. She's working there, and she's moving up the ranks. And before you know it, she's got a lab. She's doing great work. And then all of a sudden, she's bringing these people over from China into the lab. You know, it's it's it, it. You know, for some people, look at it and say, "Boy, that's a they're a really great exercise of playing the long game." You know. Yeah. Yeah. A, and that's what this a has been. Into a country, and then yeah. boom, and then twenty over twenty years later, it comes to fruition. Yeah, they, they, it certainly is the long game. That's for sure. Where do you think this is going with this? Uh, row between the Public Health Agency of Canada and these documents and this in, in this whole investigation. I mean, where does this go? Because, again, you said this is another thing they don't want to have come up before an election. Right. Well, that list is growing longer, including a scathing report from the ombudsman earlier today on the military. Oh, yeah. So uh, if they don't address this, won't this all come out during an election campaign? Well, the thing is, they're... they're, they're, they're the opposition at this point doesn't, as I said, doesn't want a summer election. If we yeah. were earlier in the uh, minority government, maybe the opposition would have got together and say, "No, I, we're we're going to we're going to defeat this government and we're going to call an election." But the timing is such that it's just not good timing, even though these are these are very good issues for the for the opposition. So, uh, in a normal period, if you know, if we were a year earlier. Then, you know, then if the government still, you know, played hardball and didn't turn these documents over to the parliament or over to the House of Commons, they would just defeat the government on a motion of non-confidence and we would have an election. But uh, given the timing of where we are right now, it's, that's not likely to happen because, as I said, you know, we don't want a summer election. Uh, the people don't want a summer election, so they're not going to be very happy about that. And uh, so th- I think uh, everybody up in Ottawa knows, well, we're going to drift into the election, probably an election call in September, and maybe these issues will come up at that point. And uh, I don't know how, you know how interested people will be at that time, but uh, that's, it's, you know, if, you don't, if you don't release any documents to the public or to the, you know, to the House of Commons committees, they're hoping that you know, this is something that uh, people will tend to forget and there won't, you know, because the next House of Commons sitting that will begin, uh, you know, uh, after the summer will be probably, will be after the election in October. And so at that point, uh, they don't have the government, whatever government we have is not likely to worry about it too much. I can't let you go, Henry, without asking you about that ombudsman report that came out today on the military. Uh, it was he, he was very, very vocal and said, uh, quote, the cycle of scandals followed by studies, recommendations for independent oversight, half solutions and resistance by the department or the Canadian Armed Forces will only be broken when action is taken. He was asked why he even had a press conference. He and I'm paraphrasing here. He said uh, there have been so many reports that have been 
been ignored. He felt the need to speak about this publicly. What are your thoughts? Well, that's it. I mean, when, when somebody, when someone like an ombudsman, somebody who's run a, a, a thorough committee or a commission to look at things and they're ignored, essentially they, they have, the only way they get, get a leverage on the government is to go to the press and, and the press hopefully will get the people, you know, excited and energized by the issue and demand that action occur. And I mean, this is typ- typical, in the, you know, where there are issues that government doesn't want to deal with. It essentially tries to, you know, string out, uh, you know, dealing with this issue by having a report after report. Uh, or somebody writes a, re- a commission writes a report, then the prime minister assigns somebody to evaluate that report and, yeah. you know, and to string things out. And I think that's uh, the only way to do that is to go to popular opinion and, uh, bring it to the attention, certainly, uh, of, uh, you know, and give a lot of facts and information for the parliamentarians to talk about and for the press to talk about so people can, you know, get their teeth into the issue and say, okay, something's really got to be done here. So how, you know, whether that's going to, you know, whether that's going to be, uh, have much impact or not. But, of course, the government knows that in a lot of cases what happens is issues die over the summer. So summertime is a is a, is a bad time for mm. issues because people leave. You know, it's they want to have a, enjoy the summer and they don't want to talk about politics, especially after a global pandemic. Oh yeah, uh, even, even even more so. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. Even, even after this, uh, I think you know people just want to are going to want to forget about this as soon as we get into the end of the pandemic, which I assume is going to be by by sometime in September, where everybody will declare including the prime minister, the pandemic's over, people are just going to want to go over, get back to normal life and say, I don't want to even think about public issues. I just want to enjoy life because the last two years of my life have been ruined by this, by this public health issue. But what, what the public hopefully takes as a lesson for it is we need to pay attention to public health. I mean, it's not for a lot of people... It's not a sort of a, a sexy issue, yeah, yeah. but it is so it is so important, and we were we are vulnerable to these diseases that come around, and 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 we have to pay attention and be ready for them. And then, then unfortunately, the world just was not ready for this disease when it came. I mean, we were just everybody was so unprepared. Yeah. So many leaders, you know, just dragged their feet to do anything. It's it's amazing that you know more people haven't died uh, from this, give, given the the, the the lack of preparation and the willingness to really get on the ball and do something real quick. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about all things political uh, in regard to the pandemic and the House of Commons and how we all get out of this. Henry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Uh, be well. Yeah, same to you, and enjoy the summer as best you can. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. In the midst of all of this global pandemic, there's been news items that have come up, and uh, it's pretty hard to uh, crack the ceiling of what a uh, global pandemic will uh, will cause people to talk about. And uh, a lot of these other issues uh, drop by the wayside and unfortunately do not get the attention, and rightly so, perhaps in some situations, because obviously there's bigger fish to fry, and that being uh, fighting this global pandemic. However, there's been lots of chatter about the military, not only this year, but certainly in past, and uh, lots of, of study and talk about what needs to be done, yet we still keep hearing of incidents coming up, and, and even more 
more so recently that uh, involving those in the hierarchy of uh, of the military. Uh, the ombudsman put out a uh, or had a news conference earlier today, and it was a scathing news conference. Uh, in which he, uh, well, I'll read you a quote. The cycle of scandals followed by studies, recommendations for independent oversight, half solutions, and resistance by the department or the Canadian Armed Forces will only be broken when action is taken. This was Gregory Lick, uh, the military ombudsman at a news conference in Ottawa. He released a position paper along with draft legislation that would allow his office to report directly to Parliament rather than to the Defence Minister and would mandate leaders to respond to his office's recommendations within timelines set by him. Uh, The Prime Minister responded to this uh, in his news conference a little later and basically said that uh, there's another report that's ongoing and we'll wait till after the next election, and um, which would be after the next election, to uh, to when it comes out and and address it then. Uh, To talk more about all of this, Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute and is with us now. Christian, again, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. Indeed. Happy to talk to you. Are you surprised by the tone of the ombudsman today? I mean, it was a, uh, a quite a scathing report in what he said and, and really drilled down to the fact that, you know, it's just study after study after study. And when he was actually asked why he was doing this news conference, he felt that there had been, and I'm paraphrasing here, so many reports that have been, been ignored, he felt the need to uh, speak about it publicly. What are your thoughts about his news conference this morning? I think this sort of echoes the frustration, I think, of many members, both officers and rank and file within the organization. I think there's, and the frustration is mounting. Uh, We can see that in recruit patterns. We can see that in um, the uh, patterns at which people are releasing from the organization. And I think the uh, government here is coming under considerable stress because uh, the longer there is sort of inaction, the more the frustration will mount. And this is, a, but I mean, this is par for the course, right? I mean, this is what we've seen in the Canadian Armed Forces, and it's also how we've seen this and previous governments deal with the same allegations uh, within the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. We get ourselves yet another report by yet another external person or by yet another parliamentary committee. We get ourselves a new commissioner or a new chief of the defense staff, and the people who are who get hung out to dry in the process uh, are the women and men who are duly trying trying to serve their country and duly trying to uh, to serve the organization. And so um, they, of course, can't speak to the media about this um, because of the constraints placed upon them. And so to some extent here, the ombudsman, I think, is giving a voice uh, to uh, what uh, what much of the membership uh, is currently uh, is currently feeling and thinking. Are you surprised at the Prime Minister's response, which was basically to fall back on the new study that he has commissioned, which will be available uh, in a while, and and I guess after the next uh, election? Are you surprised he pointed to that other study when that was in fact what the Ombudsman was saying was, we don't need any more of those, we've got a series of those, It's it, action is not being taken? Are you surprised the, the, the response wasn't a little bit more broad? Yeah, look, I mean, this is a government that has now come down 
um, uh, very hard on anybody who's accused of anything related to sexual misconduct, rightly or wrongly, within the organization. And we can see that um, it may have, in the process, overstepped its own authority and that this may possibly even amount to political meddling within operations in the chain of command. If we look at uh, the uh, case filed in federal court by Major General Danny Fortin, um, you know, we see a similar pattern when it comes to the Public Health Agency of Canada that sort of we try to make the story go away and we stand by and then all of a sudden it becomes a crisis um, and, uh, um, and then the government uh, seems to just try to want to make the, the, the particular story go away here. The Prime Minister does have a point. I mean, one of the fall downs of the 2015 policy uh, was on the one hand that not all recommendations were implemented and that on the other hand there was clearly insufficient consultation with stakeholders uh, that would have caught many of the shortfalls of the current policy and its implementation. Uh, so yes, there is probably some opportunity for to ensure that we don't make that mistake again. Yes, we are in a crisis situation. So it's absolutely critical that the government get this right, because uh, this now poses an existential threat to the institution um, if we can't recruit people and if people are so frustrated uh, that they're going to and th- that they're going to leave the institution. So yes, the government needs to get this right. But I think there's a sense that uh, the government has an opportunity show, to show political leadership here. It is ultimately responsible for the institution uh, through ministerial responsibility and, and responsible government uh, as our fundamental constitutional principle. And I think there's a sense that once again, the government is ducking its responsibility uh, when it has previously shown willingness to come down quite hard on the institution, but only when that institution appears to be uh, interfering with its own political processes and fortunes, uh, as in the case of Mark Norman, who of course was was, uh, mm. was exonerated in that particular case. So I think there's some doubt in the institution whether the government uh, is striking the right balance here. Is there any reason to believe that the report that will come out uh, in the next little while that the prime minister has commissioned, will it be any different than the one from 2015? So the mandate is somewhat different, and so as a result, necessarily the report in and of itself uh, will be uh, uh, will be different. And so there's a broader opportunity to consult also with external stakeholders and experts, which uh, was not done to the extent that it probably should have been. But inherently, um, uh, these investigations and reports can only act within the mandate and the scope uh, that is set by the government of the day. And so that also determines the answers that you you're likely to get. Um, But we can only hope that in this particular case, it won't just be a report, but rather that uh, the report will be closely coordinated with the government so that this time around we will have a government that will accept and implement all the recommendations that are being put forward um, uh, by, uh, by, this particular, by this particular report. So I think the government will need to show that there is real value added and that this is not just another report where the government will then stand back and cherry pick the implementations, the, the recommendations that uh, suit its narrative and uh, that are easy to do um, and to stand and stand down and stand aside on the ones that are hard to do, and in particular the ones of actually having an independent uh, arm's length investigative authority for complaints related to professional misconduct and, uh, and sexual misconduct.
Is this uh, is this conference news conference by the ombudsman? Is that resonating with the prime minister's office today, or are they just you know the standard line is well we got our own report coming out we'll wait and see what happens uh, after that, which really equals uh, more delay. Is there anything that can be done now with the information that we have? Yeah, I think there's a bit of a shaping the narrative going on here. So uh, the ombudsman would have certainly given the um, minister and the prime minister's office a heads up. Uh, they would have probably received a full transcript um, of uh, the um, of what was said at the news conference. They would have been given advance notice of the position paper by the ombudsman's office. Um, much of what we find there are lines with a report put out by last week by the uh, standing committee on the status of women when it comes to sexual misconduct in Canadian armed forces. And of course, we're still awaiting um, the report by the uh, Standing Committee, the House of Commons Standing Committee right. on National Defense when it comes to this matter. And I think uh, that's sort of the 500-pound gorilla in the room. And so I think in part here, um, there, as, as you might imagine, given that this report is delayed and how much... Um, uh, how much news the controversies around the hearings uh, made uh, that this is going to be a contentious report. And so I think to some extent the ombudsman here is also trying to shape uh, the report, is trying to shape the narrative. But the government would also likely agree to this, uh, presumably because uh, it is shaping the narrative in a trajectory and in a direction that the government is likely to adopt, because the government probably wouldn't want to find itself in a position uh, where it then fights an uphill battle um, against uh, its own parliamentary committees and certainly against uh, the ombudsman um, of the Canadian Armed Forces. So I think there's a sense that this topic requires uh, broader, informed public debate, and that one of the silver linings in this is that uh, we now have the public uh, consciousness, we have the awareness, the broader political awareness, and we're getting to a more informed debate so that the government can make some of the hard decisions that will be hard for it, but they will also be hard for the Department of National Defense and the Canadian Armed Forces, in part because they will ultimately curtail the um, a professional autonomy of the institution and the armed forces thinks of itself in a, as a profession and one of the identities and hallmarks of any profession of the 35 professions in Canada is self-governance. And so what is going to come out of this is going to curtail the capacity for the institution to uh, be self-governing. Uh, that creates certain hazards for the institution. Um, and so I think this is why the government is, uh, is looking to prepare the way for uh, what the public and what the institution uh, should like expect here and the ombudsman is one instrument to that effect does that mean big change is coming um, certainly um, uh, uh, the status quo is not an option and the mistakes yeah. from the past are not an option um, and this government in part has to wear the decisions that were made in 2015 because of course it was a new government it had choices at the time uh, and it opted for a minimalist rather than a maximalist approach, and it deferred to the institution, um, as it has done also with regards to the RCMP. And we can see that both within the RCMP and the Canadian Armed Forces, it had not brought the change uh, that the political leadership had hoped for, I think in part because... Um, uh, the political leadership had not paid as close attention to the file as they could and should have. Uh, they did not make as informed a decision as they could and should have. 
Um, and so as a result, they now have to uh, live with the consequences. And I think one of the one of the objectives he is here to, for the government to tide itself over past the next election because it doesn't want to fight the election on this topic. Uh, but the other is to make sure that uh, the next decision that it makes uh, is going to be sustainable and actually going to bring uh, the change that the government is promising. Because, of course, if it doesn't this time, uh, it's not just going to be a political crisis and a crisis of credibility and trust, uh, both by the Canadian public and the members who serve in the institution. Uh, it could be genuinely an existential crisis um, because the men and women, the women and men that serve duly and diligently in uniform, that is the organization's most important asset. And so if we can't recruit the best and brightest, we can show that the institution affords genuine equality of opportunity, and we can show that the single largest employer in Canada is not able to provide a workplace environment where uh, everybody feels safe uh, and everybody feels they can serve with dignity, um, then clearly um, we have failed the institution, the government has failed Canadians, and uh, um, and the government has uh, has failed um, ultimately the ability to keep this country safe and sound. And I think the government is fully aware that it cannot afford to find itself in that situation. How does uh, what the ombudsman said earlier on today, how does that reflect on Defence Minister Sajan? I think it is becoming increasingly obvious that there's not too much love lost between, uh, shall we say, not just the ombudsman, but generally the office of the ombudsman and the minister. Now, the ombudsman is one of four direct reports to the minister, and uh, you will recall where the ombudsman reports is ultimately one of the areas that is up for debate here, should the ombudsman report to parliament. Yeah. Um, that is the sense by members of parliament, but I have strongly argued against that because parliament cannot actually act uh, because the civil service and the Canadian Armed Forces report to the minister and to the executive, they do not report to parliament. So making the ombudsman an agent of parliament uh, would not affect the change that Canadians are looking for. What we do need, however, is a much broader capacity for an inspector general that can uh, that has uh, more resources, that can be much more proactive in its investigations, and that can also have the capacity for to implement change and to monitor that change uh, proactively. And I think part of what we're seeing here is the ombudsman essentially telling the minister that uh, what the office can currently do is clearly insufficient relative to both the demands of the office uh, and the challenges that the institution is facing. And I think the position paper by the ombudsman lays out a pretty clear pathway of uh, the deficiencies within the current system um, and how these need to be remedied. Uh, I'm sure the minister is not particularly thrilled about uh, the press conference this morning and the position paper. Uh, at the same time, a prudent minister will take to heart uh, the considerable amount of information that is being provided through parliamentary committees, through the ombudsman, and through the external review that the minister has initiated, um, and will collate these into a more coherent policy and an effective policy policy uh, than we saw in the past. How can a defense minister survive this, considering the report was first there in 2015 for him? 
look, the Defence Minister is um, a very strong member of uh, the Liberal Caucus. Um, he's very popular in his writing. He's popular within caucus. Uh, he is a very effective fundraiser. Um, and I also don't think that, given what's going on, there's anyone snapping at his heels within caucus uh, to try to take over that particular portfolio. Mm. So I think this is why uh, he uh, there's probably not a lot of risk to him uh, as a leader, um, as, as, as the minister on that portfolio. Um, but look, I mean, the, the defense portfolio is always a challenging portfolio. This is a big organization with big budgets uh, that engages in uh, high-risk um, activities just by virtue of the mandate that it has, um, and um, it faces serious challenges. I mean, none of what we saw here is a particular secret. Um, it was just, I think, lost on the government and the minister just how explosive uh, the issues of leadership, uh, professional misconduct, and sexual misconduct are and how pervasive they are within the organization. I think that's the only revelation to the government and the minister here. So I'm, I, my sense is not that the minister is sort of in, uh, uh, in, in any immediate, uh, in immediate danger and mm. we will likely see continuity. And that is probably one of the benefits um, to perhaps the silver lining in this broader conversation, um, uh, that um, it takes a long time to understand this institution, given that he has served in the institution, given how long he has been minister. I think he now understands how the institution works. Uh, he understands um, which stones to turn over. Um, he understands what he's going to find. And I think um, the longevity of the minister may actually be beneficial uh, in not only implementing a clear plan, but also the ability to follow through on that plan, hold the department accountable, and also the government being able to say to Canadians, we're keeping this minister in place because this minister is going to answer for the mm. solutions and the policies that we are going to put in place as a government. So we can only hope that that is going to lead to more coherent and more effective political leadership um, than we have seen in the past on this file. And if there's one thing that's been lacking and that is thoroughly needed to actually make sustainable inroads, it's political leadership. Uh, we've got a very limited amount of time left. In a post-COVID-19 world, does the status quo work? Is it changing our opinion on everything, including issues like these? So um, it is clearly a very different – look, this is a department that is significantly challenged on many fronts, and not just on institutional culture. It has multiple large procurement projects that, are, that the department absolutely has to make, whether it's fighter jets or it's the Canadian surface combatant. Uh, it has challenges around NORAD renewal. It has a host of – uh, very important deployments um, along various NATO flanks, uh, as well as in Africa and in support of UN missions. Uh, this is a department, this is maybe the key department on delivering on Canadian national interests abroad. And I think the government understands uh, just how integral this department is to Canadian foreign policy. And so uh, it is in every government's interest to make sure that this department works and this department delivers. Um, mm. And the challenges that we see within leadership and within the human resources uh, is providing, is seriously compromising um, the ability of the department to deliver on its current mission sets.
Christian Laprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute talking about issues within the military and the uh, drive to get things changed. Christian, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.